Good evening, and welcome to the Revelation Power Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Hopkins, and tonight I want to focus on a story that we don't talk about a great deal in church, and and there's a reason, there's several reasons actually, but I want to approach the story of what we call the, the slaughter of the innocents. It's a story that only occurs in one of the Gospels. That's the Gospel of Matthew. And in the Gospel of Matthew, it's it's really part of the story of the visit of the Magi. It, it isn't a Christmas story, technically, and yet it's part of the cycle of stories that are the Christmas and Epiphany season. But it says something interesting and unique um, both among the gospel narratives and to us culturally. And so I want to take a look at it, and we'll talk about all of the problems with it and the purpose of it. So it's Matthew chapter 2, and it starts in verse 13. After the Magi have left uh, Palestine and are headed back to their town and and Herod realizes that they haven't come back to tell him where to find the new king. Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. When they, the Magi, had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the baby and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and younger, in accordance with the time he'd learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned again in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. So, you get the flavor of Matthew very clearly here. And you see that his purpose is to speak to Jewish people. The account of Luke is most likely the the eyewitness account of Mary to many of the events that Luke records. They are Mary's recollections. That's why you get that, that little statement in Luke that says, and Mary treasured all these things and pondered them in her heart. Um, That reflective comment means that he's hearing these things from the person who's done the reflection. 
right? No one else would know that Mary had pondered on those things except her. So that's the flavor of Luke. It's Mary's perspective and it's written to Greek people. The, the need to connect events to prophecy or to identity hooks in, in Jewish faith doesn't exist in Luke. Matthew's writing his gospel to Jews. He's a Jew. He, he was a tax collector for the Romans. And, and he's, he's educated. He's, he understands how Christ must be connected to all of these things that were pointing toward a Messiah. And so he's doing this kind of theologian task that Luke doesn't have to do or even try to do. Matthew does. And so one of the things that, that people have brought up, um, well, there's a few things. So we'll start with the fact that this story of the slaughter of the innocents doesn't appear anywhere else in the Bible, nor does it, nor does it appear in any uh, independent historical witness. So you've got people like Josephus, who was a tremendous historian and, and goes to pain to show that Herod murders his own children to keep them from inheriting his throne. Why wouldn't he mention this? You've got Luke himself, who's a great biblical historian, uh, a witness from inside the Bible, and he doesn't mention this slaughter of the innocents. And, and he's telling Mary's story. Mary would have certainly held this to be important information. Why wouldn't she relate it to Luke? Why is this important to Matthew and no one else on the face of the earth? Which has led some scholars to say it's legend or it's myth or it never happened. Matthew made it up. There's a whole bunch of then irresponsible things in the other direction. So how do we deal with this responsibly? And, and begin to ferret out what Matthew's trying to do here. Well, he's speaking to Jews, and so he's got to show historical connections. Dealing with just this supposed slaughter of the innocents. Um, biblical scholars, really good biblical scholars, have kind of analyzed the population likelihood of Bethlehem through history. And in and around the time that Christ was born, Bethlehem would have been a town of maybe 200, 300 at the most people, and and probably closer to 200 people. It's not a big city. It's just a tiny town, and, and it's a little bit spread out. People have made homes, and they didn't have streets and avenues and that kind of stuff. They've got homes kind of where they were convenient to build. Uh, some people wanted a little more space from their neighbors. Some people didn't mind being a little closer. So it's this ragtag collection of homes built probably around the the sheep herding um, activity in that area. It is the town of shepherds. It is the city of David who was a shepherd. Um, it's an agricultural community. But that agriculture hasn't kept up by the time that Christ is born with the growth of Jerusalem nearby. And so, as happens to this day, 
the kids that have grown up in an area like that tend to leave it and go to the city where there's greater opportunity, more financial prospect, more more chance at a successful, self-sustaining life than there is fighting for space among the shepherds, right? So scholars believe that by the time Jesus is born, Bethlehem is mostly older people. It's an aged small town that's getting older and the youth have pretty much all left. And so the number of children two years old and below might be two or three, might be zero. Uh, Jesus may literally be the only child under the age of two in that town or its vicinity. And so Herod may very well have ordered It wouldn't have been Roman soldiers like in some of the paintings I've seen. It would have been Herod's guard. It would have been the king's own guard, Israelites, not Romans. And so Herod may very well have ordered his personal guard to go out there and hunt down and kill any child under the age of two. They very well may have gone and just not found anyone and come back and said, no, there's no babies out there that age. So... It's, it's very likely that this event was ordered. It's also very likely that nothing happened because Jesus was gone by that time. And so it doesn't, it doesn't conflict with history that it doesn't appear in Josephus because historians typically don't write about things that didn't happen, Right? And Herod's not going to advertise, hey, I sent my guard out to kill all these two-year-old babies and and they didn't find anybody. He's not going to admit to being that much of a psychopath. Everybody knows he is, but he's not going to publicize the fact. And so the connections that Matthew makes are more important than the historicity. Historically, I think something happened. But theologically, more is taking place. Jesus is endangered as a baby. And his mother and father take him to Egypt. Um, Well, there's a little bit of historical context there. A baby who's in danger then set afloat in Egypt and then... When he's older, he flees that country because he's committed a crime in in protection of one of his countrymen. And he doesn't come back until God tells him that the Pharaoh who wanted to kill him is deceased. And that's Moses, right? He flees because he kills a man in defense of his, one of his own countrymen. And God finds him out there at Sinai and says, Pharaoh's dead. I need you to come back and set my people free. And Matthew wants his Jewish readers to catch that comparison and see that here's the new Moses. And so it he says it's in fulfillment of this prophecy that says, I called my son out of Egypt. Well, Israel was called out of Egypt 
a long time ago, out of slavery, out of bondage, and into the desert, and then into the promised land. And Matthew wants his Jewish readers to see that. Jesus is coming back to Israel just like they did. He, he is the embodiment of the faith story, the salvation story of Israel. Then the, the innocents are at least hunted, if not slaughtered. And Matthew says this is to fulfill another scripture, that the children of Israel would be endangered by the enemies of Israel and the enemies of the Messiah. So there are all these things going on with Matthew that are are culturally and textually important for you to grasp because they speak to what this scripture says to you and I today. We've done all of that setup not to get at a historical certainty of that day because that doesn't exist. And it doesn't have to. The child was in danger. The child was protected by God. An angel tipped Joseph off, got him to leave the country before Herod orders the slaughter. An angel comes to Joseph and tells him it's safe to go back. Joseph goes back only to find Archelaus having taken his father's place, also a weird dude. And so Joseph skirts Jerusalem and goes right on up to Nazareth and kind of hides out in this small town in Galilee. And this, Matthew says, is to fulfill the prophecy that said he would be called a Nazarene. Nazareth, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Right? So that's all going to happen as well. What's that say to you and me today? Kevin, it's almost 2023. What in the world difference does this make now? It makes a huge difference. And we're going to talk about more of this when when I share with you my, my New Year's message um, about how do we live in a culture where the woke movement seems to just be gobbling up everything sensible about our our culture, our history, our government, even our church, and and the values of our church are getting lost in this in this woke craziness. So I'm going to do that in a couple more episodes, but this is the precursor to that. Herod is hunting Jesus. I think I'm going to entitle this episode Killing Jesus, or at least trying to. Herod gets the word from the Magi that a new king has been born. And Herod is the king, and he knows all of his children. And and he's killed some of them because he was afraid they would take his throne. And now he hears there's a king that's been born to Israel that's not part of his family, but he's not going to have that. He's too much of a sociopath and psychopath to allow that. So he's going to find out who these wise guys from the East think this king is, and then he's going to have him killed. He's going to extinguish this king. And I look at our society, and it hasn't changed. The the roots of this 
of this violence go way back in history to those who've tried to silence the voice of God for centuries, millennia. But but here's Herod trying to take out Christ before he ever gets to speak a word. And, and he becomes the latest in this string of silence the voice of authority, silence the voice of peace and grace and goodness. And we'll talk again in a couple of episodes, but just a brief perspective I want you to kind of start to familiarize yourself with. In the 1800s, early to mid-1800s, there was a German philosopher named Hegel. And Hegel was the guy that came up with the idea of the dialectic, uh, that, that in society there is always a thesis and antithesis, and the answer to the conflict is a synthesis. The thesis is always the status quo. It's always the way things are right now. The antithesis is always the revolution against the way things are right now, the the push to progress, to get better. And the synthesis is always the compromise that's reached between the status quo and the progression that pulls us forward, ultimately ending in this liberal utopia. Marx takes Hegel and says that engine of continual revolution must happen in governments and societies today to lead us into into this social utopia. And so he begins to, to describe the forces of society that are going to have to revolt. The people, right? The proletariat, he called them. The people, the working class is going to have to revolt to get out of the subjugation that it's been held under by the ruling class. And and so he develops this whole idea of socialism and communism that would lead us to this communist utopia. But the proletariat never revolted. The, The military revolted, but the story of the rise of communism in Eastern Europe is not the rise of the working class. The working class was just as subjugated under communism as it had been under a czar, imperialism. So they never escaped their subjugation. They were just subjugated by different masters. And so there was a a group, the Frankfurt School of Thought, a bunch of Marxists that were were in Germany and, and in Eastern Europe, and they escaped communism, even though they purportedly supported it. They escaped, they made it to the United States, they became faculty at Columbia University of all places and Harvard. And and they began to theorize how in the world revolution would really ultimately happen. How would the proletariat ever rise? And the way that they came up with doing this in Western culture, where there were all kinds of institutions that would that would stifle revolution. There were strong families. There were strong churches. There was strong faith. People treated each other with fairness and goodness. There was a moral code. There was a rule of law that that Eastern Europe didn't have 
with Hegel and Marx. And so how would this have to happen? This revolution would have to come about by the undermining of the nuclear family, the undermining of the anchor of the church and culture, the undermining of the rule of law. So that's where all this wokeness begins to come from. And, and part of the pillar of, of sparking the needed progressive revolution in Western culture was an attack against Christ, an attack against the church. The church's authority had to be undermined in society. The church had to be increasingly portrayed as a sick, controlling, authoritarian organization. Now, the really sad thing is that there's a bunch of churches in the United States that have devolved into exactly that. And the more the, more the woke Marxists tried to paint the church that way, the more the church acted that way. We weren't welcoming, we weren't accepting, we weren't forgiving and loving and gracious. We were judgmental and exclusive and country clubbish. And so it lent credibility to this attack against the church, against Christ, because the church is the body of Christ in this world. What will have to happen in order for that attack not to continue to bear fruit in our culture? Well, God will have to step in, literally. There will have to be another preservation. And the interesting thing is that the book of Revelation promises that, right? That the woman is carried off into the desert and she's protected. That the child, she's Israel, the child who is Christ and the church is, is spirited away from the beast so that he can't be harmed. The witnesses are persecuted and, and killed, or they thought they'd killed them, but they're resurrected. So the book of Revelation is full of this message of when you think you've got us, you don't. Because God gets the last word. Now don't be smug and arrogant about that, church. Because God has to have the last word because the church is so ill right now. We are so often what the Marxists have painted us to be. We are so often what the woke draw caricatures of. And you don't have to look very far in the past months to see exactly what I'm talking about. I mean, I, I was flabbergasted that last Sunday, which was Christmas Sunday, there were a whole bunch of churches in my area that canceled church to not inconvenience people with Jesus on Christmas. But that goes back a couple of years to that day when they told us we could no longer have church. You remember? COVID sprung up. Things started getting bad. We started to kind of hide out. We still had church. Some of us went to hand sanitizer at the end of every pew, a box of Kleenexes on the end of every pew, both ends of each pew, actually, and more underneath the pew on the floor. 
we, we practiced coughing into our elbows and we, we forsook shaking hands or hugging each other's necks. We tried to stay out of each other's faces. I mean, there were even articles about not singing in church too close to someone because you'd be ejecting your breath out into the air and they might get infected with your germs. So we couldn't sing. Then we had to wear masks in church. I so wanted to preach during that time and just read from Paul. And we who with unveiled faces stand before, I, good heavens, every little bit they took away from us, we gave up. And then they said, you can't have church. Church is canceled. And, and it wasn't a statewide thing where I live, was some places, but it was a, a community by community thing. And there was a, a community not far from here that said, no church. You may not meet for church in any quantity, in any place, in any time. You may not have indoor church. And so Jesus was under attack. The, the, the world's answer to this pandemic was to stop people from praying? It was baffling to me. But this little pastor in this neighboring town said, no, we're not going to do that. There was a guy in his church that owned this 30 or 40 acre parcel on the main street of their town, just across from one of the most popular eating places in that community. This, I'd say it's probably 30 acres right by the railroad tracks between the main street and the railroad tracks in that town. So no business has ever purchased that land because the train is allowed going past there. And the, the shape of the parcel is kind of triangular. It's kind of funny shaped. So it doesn't lend itself real well to, to a business and enough parking to make a business work but it's still a fairly good size. Like I say, it's probably 30 acres. It's a good sized piece of land. It's just oddly shaped. But this man in the church said, hey, we could have church on my piece of property. We'll be on Main Street. Anybody driving by will see what we're doing. We'll get a gooseneck trailer. We'll set up the platform, all the instruments. I've got generators. We'll fire up the generator so we've got power for the sound system. We'll invite people to come and park. They can sit in their cars. They can leave the windows rolled up. It'll be loud enough to be heard in the car. Or they can roll the windows down. Or as long as they stay more than six feet apart, they can get their lawn chairs out and sit in the grass. And that's what they did. And the first Sunday, you know, their little church of 50 or 60 people had 50 or 60 people that showed up for church. And word got out that this church is still having church. Now, it's March and they're outdoors. It's going to be a little chilly, but you can sit in your car and leave the engine running and still hear church because they've got the sound system turned on. And so while other churches were broadcasting their pastor hiding in the sanctuary by himself, preaching a message with no worship and no real inclusion and involvement, here's a church that's still doing their best to have church. And people started to come in droves. They had 300, 350 cars parking in this field to listen and participate in church. The city started to come out and say, you can't use that property for that purpose. You're breaking the law. And the pastor said, show me the law. 
that says we can't meet on a piece of private property outdoors and 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 worship where people in their cars more than six feet apart, not hugging, not shaking hands, not indoors, all masked up if they're outside, can't worship. And the city couldn't do it. They had no answer but to say, You're, you shouldn't be doing this. You can't be doing this. But they did. Because they didn't let the crazy culture dictate to them what they could do. They understood that the the world has no authority over the kingdom, that the world has no station over the kingdom. You can't tell us what we can do and what we can't do. What are you going to do? Kill us? Send us home? You have no authority over us. We are the church of Jesus Christ. We serve the one true God. And if he is for us, who's going to stand against us? It's not arrogance, it's faith. It's understanding that, okay, we'll do our best to comply with the law as you've dictated it to us. Even if it's not written in the law, suddenly you're making up laws that now we can't have church. Okay, you said we couldn't have church indoors. We'll go have church outdoors. You said we we couldn't be around each other without masks. We'll wear masks. You say we can't be outside congregating. We won't congregate. We'll park in our cars. So there's a way, you see, always, there's a way around the things that the enemy throws in the way of the church because the enemy has been trying to take the witness of Christ out of this world since the day Christ was born. And in 2023, or whatever year you're living in now, can we look for ways to get around this idiot culture, this stupidity that drags cross-dressers in front of our children for story hour, this crazy culture that continues to add layer upon layer to its victimhood in order to be credible. Can we look for the truth and and not in arrogance or pride, but in humility and grace? In, in the simple desire that the gospel would go forward, that lost folks could hear the good news, that those who are hurting could know there's healing, that those who are fighting addiction and disease and, and, and trouble could know that there are answers, real answers to what they face. The world has always tried to kill Christ. Thought they'd succeeded at one point, but he came back. The world has always tried to negate the witness of Christ within it. Would you join me this next year in a gracious rebellion against that influence that would take Jesus out of our world? And let's be the influence that keeps him in.